Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Catherine M. Broughton and Claire Cady, editors of the new collection, Food Insecurity on Campus, Action and Intervention, published with Johns Hopkins University Press in 2020. Catherine Broughton is assistant professor in the Department of Educational Policy and Leadership Studies and by courtesy the Department of Sociology at the University of Iowa. Claire Cady is the co-founder of the College and University Food Bank Alliance and director of research and innovation at Single Stop. Thank you both so much for agreeing to speak with me on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So we always start the conversation with some background. Uh, So what's your academic background and how did it lead you to work on campus food insecurity? Uh, Katie, what do you think? Yeah, so after uh, working in college access programming and at a community-based research organization, I went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and I wanted to study sociology, education, and inequality. And there I was fortunate enough to receive some really great training uh, with the Wisconsin Center for Education Research, which was led by Adam Gameron at the time, and the Institute for Research on Poverty with Catherine Magnuson. And I joined Sarah Goldrick Rabb's research team. Now, that research team was studying need-based financial aid and basically how students pay for college. And it was that research team more than a decade ago now that started hearing from students on college campuses that not only were they having trouble affording college, but they couldn't always afford basic food and shelter. So I ended up working with Sarah. She ended up becoming my advisor and mentor, and I was really drawn to these student narratives. I think for a couple of reasons, Um, in part because they actually reminded me of stories I had heard when I lived in Kenya and studied girls' education and development, Mm -hmm. and also because very few people in academia and the scholarly research side of things or in, in policy seem to be talking about this really serious problem, and a problem that was not new, but one that practitioners, those working in higher education, had long been aware of and talking about and working about working on. So I thought there was really a great need and a great opportunity to work in this area. And because I know we have some students listening, I'll just add that not everyone thought this was a good idea. I had Mm -hmm. uh, some scholars, some professors tell me that I should go in a different direction, but it just shows that you shouldn't always listen to the people in power. And it's important to trust your gut, your intuition on some of these things. Yeah, that's great. Claire, what's your kind of background? So I came up in uh, education administration. Um, I have a master's degree in education from Washington State University, go Cougs. Um, And I worked primarily at the start of my career in college housing. So I, you know, managed residence halls, I did student development work, a lot of training and facilitation, diversity education. Um, And I, I, stepped away at the end of my master's program because I was incredibly tired. 
and went to go work for a wilderness therapy program um, and spent some years with young people out in the wilderness. And uh, that program was um, terminated as a result of the recession. And so I found myself uh, homeless, living out of my car and, um, you know, seeking employment because I had, had been laid off and came across a position at Oregon State University that was looking to run an office called the Human Services Resource Center. And it was focused on making sure students had what they need to afford college. Um, it was not something I came across when I was training to be a college administrator. And with the background I had working with at-risk youth, um, as well as my education work, it seemed like a really good fit. Um, and so I got started with that. It would have been 2010. And uh, since then, have really continued to develop a body of knowledge and and ideas and resources in this basic needs work. So a good place to start uh, with the conversation is usually definition. So when we're talking about college students experiencing hunger or food insecurity, what does that really mean, Katie? I really appreciate you starting with this question because hunger and food insecurity are two different things. So almost all of us have experienced hunger or being hungry. It's that physiological feeling or sensation in your stomach that you get when you haven't had enough to eat. And this can happen for any number of reasons, right? But food insecurity, on the other hand, is when someone lacks reliable access to enough food for a healthy and active life due to resource limitations. That is, they don't have enough money or other resources to get enough food. And food insecurity exists on a spectrum or a continuum. So we find that some people reduce the quality of their diet to try and help make ends meet. So someone might eat off the dollar menu at a fast food restaurant or purchase those 69 cent ramen noodles or drink a bunch of soda to help their stomach feel full and avoid those hunger pains that all of us have felt at one time or another if we're food insecure or not. And then there's others that actually reduce the quantity of their food intake. They're skipping meals, they're cutting meals, when that type of behavior is almost always certainly associated with feelings of hunger. So talk a little bit about the academic field of studying food security in general uh, and, and on college campuses specifically. So who's doing this work from, from what sort of backgrounds and fields? Yeah, one of the things that I think makes this area so exciting and promising to work in is that it's really a multidisciplinary effort with scholars coming in from a lot of different backgrounds, with college practitioners coming in and contributing to the conversation, as well as policymakers. So some of the first people to study food insecurity on college campuses were actually public health or nutrition scholars. I think a key strength that they bring to this work is that they know a lot about food and, and health, and they've long studied food insecurity in the greater community. And a lot of that knowledge 
does apply to the student population or campus and higher education, but you know, not all of it. So of course I'm biased here being a sociologist of education, but I think the field really moved forward when education scholars and practitioners got involved and they could help analyze and articulate the student experience and how these experiences related to the way um, that higher education is structured and, and funded and what this means for a student or campus population in particular because food insecurity on our college campuses isn't an individual level problem for the most part, right? It's, it's, a, it's a systemic problem. And now that this area of inquiry has kind of grown and developed over the last five years or so, there's been a lot of different people adding their voice to the conversation. I think it's exciting that more social workers have gotten involved, thinking about how they can provide their lens to the work as well as from others from other kind of social science disciplines. Well, and the collection really demonstrates that interdisciplinarity in the contributors. There are people from all kinds of backgrounds uh, adding to the collection. Yeah. One of the problems that you and, and a lot of the contributors point to throughout the book is that there's a lack of really sufficient data about the problem of student hunger, or that data is um, really useful for making the argument for policy changes and programmatic development. So Claire, what do we know about the scope of the problem of food insecurity on campuses? What are the studies that we rely on for this data? So I would say that probably the most prominent study is the Real College Study, which is put on annually by the Hope Center for College Community and Justice at Temple University. Um, That was formerly known as the Wisconsin Hope Lab at the University of Wisconsin. And this is a study that has been five years running. Um, It uh, has reached over... 330,000 students at over 411 colleges and universities throughout the country. And that includes two and four-year institutions and uh, both public and private institutions. And um, what we know is that food insecurity is prevalent on college campuses. And in most cases, and actually many cases, it is higher than the rate of food insecurity in the Uh, general population. So in 2019, they had almost 167,000 students from 171 two-year institutions and 56 four-year institutions that responded to their survey. Um, And 39% of respondents had been food insecure in the prior 30 days. Um, They also measure things like housing insecurity and homelessness, which also have uh, extremely high numbers um, compared to what one might assume about a college student. Um, And and so there have been other studies that have been done within specific systems. So the California State University system, the University of California system, the City University of New York system have all conducted kind of studies that are on a smaller scale um, of the campuses that kind of make up their system. And we're seeing that those numbers are, um, you know, they could be higher depending on the, um, the system. But what we're seeing is that those numbers, again, are much higher than what we're seeing in the general population, which kind of ranges from 14 to 16 percent. So a key argument running throughout all of the essays is that, as you mentioned just a moment ago, today's college student has changed significantly. And what we've assumed about college students in the past is maybe not accurate anymore. Right. The economic landscape they're dealing with is different from what many administrators and faculty assume. So Claire, start us off. What what is today's student really up against 
Hmm. Well, I think before we want to talk about what they, they're up against, we probably want to think a little bit about who they are. Yeah. Right. So I had mentioned that, um, you know, people think of a college student in a specific way. And generally they think of them as 18 to 22. Uh, they, their parents went to college. They're attending a four-year institution. Maybe they get some financial aid, but, you know, they're able to have a work study job, make ends meet. They're staying in a residence hall. And what we know about college students today is that that is not necessarily the case. Uh, we're talking a lot about the kind of the new traditional student. And those students, um, first off, are more likely to be ten- attending a two-year institution. Uh, they are more likely to be over the age of 22. More of them are women. We're seeing an increase in students of color on college campuses. And we also are seeing a large percentage of them who have children or elderly dependents. So when we think about these students and we think about their experiences, what we know is that these students are dealing with a lot more kind of quote unquote real life challenges beyond the classroom. And that's where we're really coming into some of these conversations around basic needs. So students are experiencing things like food and housing insecurity, and those things are dramatically affecting their ability to learn. And what we know is that when a student steps across the threshold onto a college campus, they don't leave that stuff behind. Um, And so, you know, the the students are experiencing a tremendous amount of stress and strain financially. And what we hear from students regularly is, you know, well, we ask them, you know, what makes it hard for you to be here or why did you drop out or stop out? And what we hear from students is, um, you know, life happened and life has a price tag. Yeah. Katie, what are some of the other kind of problems that maybe today's students face that we might not expect? Yeah, I mean, on in addition to all the things that Claire mentioned, you know, I could zoom out a little bit, right? So mm-hmm. looking beyond who our students are, I, it's the structure of higher education and our economy has changed. So the net price of college attendance, that's what students have to, and their families have to come up with out of pocket, right? After grants or scholarships are applied, that net price of college attendance has been rising. And in the public sector, where most college students are attending, this is, you know, in large part due to state disinvestment in higher education. The, a, a generation ago, there was a stronger social compact that recognized the societal or public benefits of higher education. And as a result, states contributed significantly towards the cost of higher education. And today, that's really no longer the case. And as a result, students and their families are asked to pay more out of pocket to attend college. And this is at the same time when the real value of the minimum wage has has fallen. So we find that our students, most students are working. They're increasingly employed in, in precarious working arrangements. There was a time when, you know, generations ago, you could work a part-time job, maybe a work-study job on campus in your summers and afford college. And, and those days are long gone. The math simply doesn't add up like it used to for prior generations in the U.S. And on top of that, I just add, you know, there's been, you know, changes to our social safety net over the past generation. So not only um, are families struggling, students struggling to afford college, but oftentimes students are trying to help their families. In addition to paying for college, it takes several working adults to kind of meet meet the rent and the needs of the household. Um, and frankly, the, the way our financial aid system and higher education is set up does not recognize this reality that too many of our students and their families find themselves in today. 
I was struck by how many of the essays and both of your answers to that last question as well, describe that students' barriers to graduation are interlocking and compounding, and almost none of them have to do with academics themselves, right? So one of the essays described a survey of students that concluded that the top 10 reasons that they failed to complete their degrees were all really financial in nature. They were not about academic preparedness or their ability to learn. So Katie, describe some of those compounding issues that might be linked with food insecurity. Certainly. And I think it's important to say that, you know, this doesn't mean that there are no academic challenges to college completion. There there certainly are academic challenges. Um, but when this college surveyed their students, their students pointed to these non-academic barriers like food and housing insecurity. Um, and I think uh, Chapter 3, uh, Professor Michael Rosen does a pretty good job of explaining this in the book. He says that poverty and, and particularly extreme poverty poverty is not a one-time occurrence, right? It's not a one-off. And he actually quotes this journalist, um, Marcella Bamdieri, who's written on this topic. And, and she explains that students often lurch from crisis to crisis, semester to semester. And that's part of the reason why community college graduation rates uh, in particular are lower than we would hope for. So we're talking about things like, you know, a broken car, car repair needed, a spike in gas prices, a sick child, a lost babysitter, a cut in job hours, right? These things can really send students and families um, over the edge when they're living on the margins. And this is why in that chapter, he talks about emergency grant aid in particular. When a program like that's implemented well, it can really make a difference between staying in school and dropping or stopping out. Because as I mentioned, you know, so many of our students, they just don't have that personal safety net or the public safety net to catch them. And that's why um, benefits hubs or these places on campus where students can find support for a lot of these related issues, not only food, but housing, utilities, childcare, transportation, mental and physical health, right? These hubs are really gaining popularity on college campuses. Well, that's a good segue to talk about the subtitle of the collection as action and intervention. So we've been talking a lot about the problem so far, but the collection really is focused on solutions that have been tested in a wide variety of institutions and locations. Uh, So Claire, talk a little bit about the College and University Food Bank Alliance uh, and food pantries more generally as potential solutions. Sure. So the College and University Food Bank Alliance, or CUFBA for short, uh, came out of a collaboration between myself when I was working at Oregon State University and my colleague, Nate Smith-Tyke, who was at the time a graduate student at Michigan State University. And both of us had sort of sideways stumbled uh, into this work in basic needs. Uh, Like I said, I, because I took a job at Oregon State um, when I had become unemployed, and Nate, because he was in need of a graduate assistantship, and he was offered the graduate assistantship um, as the director of the Michigan State Campus Food Bank. And so he and I were both sort of searching for other people that were doing this work. You know, when we came across it on this particular campus, we both noted how important it could be to help a student. And also it brought forward this question, what are other students on other campuses getting or not getting? And how big of an issue is this nationally? 
So both of us were out sort of scouring the internet, looking for other campuses that had these food pantries and found each other. And and the purpose of the uh, collaboration was initially to create a professional organization of people doing the work we were doing. And we very quickly discovered that we were among a very small handful of professionals doing this work on college campuses. And as we started to build out the program, we found as more and more campuses knew this was an issue, they wanted help and assistance in doing similar programs. So we rebranded very quickly in response to the field to become a capacity building organization. And that's what we've been doing uh, for the last, well, it's over eight years now. And um, we help colleges to start food insecurity or food programs addressing food insecurity primarily campus pantries, but not limited to that. We do help campuses think through other interventions as well. Um, and I would say that food pantries, I have, so as it's going to sound strange, but as a founder and former director of this organization, I actually have a love-hate relationship with the campus food pantry as an intervention. Mm-hmm. And um, what that, what I mean by that is that we know that students need food today. And so we want to get them that food. But we also know that if they needed food today, there's a high likelihood sometime in the near future they're going to need it again. So there's no way for us to put a campus pantry down and say we have solved for student hunger. And that is where we find a lot of campuses stop. And so the the goal of KUFBA in the last two or three years has been to push beyond the pantry because we recognize that you can't say you solved basic needs and security as you're on your campus because you're giving out some boxes of food. And we also know how critical those boxes of food are for that student in that moment. So it's sort of a, a creative tension, if you will. Um, and our goal is really to treat it as, in, in some ways, like a, for lack of a better, better metaphor, a gateway drug into longer term solutions and increased multifaceted solutions. So what do some of those food pantries look like? Can you maybe describe the, the range of sizes and, mm-hmm. and kind of structures that a campus food pantry could have? It is a broad range. Um, we see campus pantries as well-established as that Michigan State University uh, food bank, where they're raising 80000 or more dollars per year to stock their shelves through their foundation, through their sports programs. And they're serving thousands of students meals, boxes of food throughout a year. They are doing fresh, frozen, shelf-stable foods, and often things like cleaning supplies, sanitary napkins, and other items that students might need. And then we'll see a closet in the back of a dean's office where people might drop off some food now and again, and they pull some granola bars out for students. Um, And one of the things that we decided when we started KUFBA was that both of those are campus pantries. So if your goal and your function and purpose is to make sure students who are food insecure have food and you're giving that food to them, we're going to classify you as a pantry. And we're going to help you if you are that closet in the back of the dean's office to develop a game plan for data collection or fundraising or food raising or awareness raising that you need to do to take that to maybe the next step, which would be a small storage closet 
where you now have students that can drop by and volunteers will pack them a bag. So that would be another example. We also see some very cool creative partnerships between campuses and local agencies. So that might look like um, the Interfaith Food Shuttle coming to campus and that the campus is actually um, advertising that to students and that serves as their campus pantry. Or there might be an opportunity to open up a space where your local food bank would have a satellite space on campus for students to use it. So it takes on a lot of different shapes um, and sizes. And we actually did a survey in collaboration with the Hope Center, I want to say it was two years ago, where we surveyed our campuses to find out about these things, you know, and their budgets ranged from zero to 300,000. And their service numbers ranged from 25 to 2,500 or more. So it really depends on the campus and the level of support that the campus has for that program, um, how it shows up. So other solutions that are described in the collection are more directly financial. So students apply for small amounts of financial aid and and quickly receive like an emergency payment. Uh, Katie, will you describe some of those programs and how they can make a difference for students? Yeah, so I think it's important to note that these are not necessarily part of the financial aid system or office, but rather uh, small emergency grants for students in need. So the idea is that they can help students perhaps buy a textbook or help with a security deposit on an apartment, replace a broken laptop, buy a new pair of glasses, right? Some of these one-time incidentals that, you know, can, can really make a difference for students of whether they're able to stay in college and persist or not when they don't have that savings account, that safety net to fall back on. Um, Like Claire mentioned, with food pantries, they take lots of different shapes and and forms. Some of them are part of established networks. Others are, you know, um, homegrown on a particular campus. Um, I think the key to keep in mind with these programs is that like so many things, the devil's really in the details and it's really about implementation. So we found that, you know, in order for these emergency grant programs to be successful, students need to know about them, right? They need to know these resources exist and they need to know that when they go in to make an application for an emergency grant, that they're not going to be kind of re-traumatized or, or made to to prove their poverty in, in certain ways that are that are stigmatizing rather than welcoming. Um, we found that the research field has also found that it's really important to um, have a system of how you're going to distribute these funds in, in a way that's not only equitable, um, but is quick. You mentioned that in the introduction to the question. These emergencies are often essential, uh, very time sensitive. So um, they need to be able to turn around those um, emergency grants. In, in a short period of time. And I think um, the chapter in the book that talks about emergency grants in particular does a really good job of walking the line between here are some different structures of programs. These are some of the limitations that we found and some of the things that we're working to try and improve on in terms of speed and efficiency and equitability when it comes to emergency grants for students in need. Yeah, I was struck in that, in that chapter that you're describing how how often their work was about connecting to unused funds that were somewhere else, right? That the the grant institution existed, but really one of its main jobs was to borrow or direct students to other grant funds. 
Yeah, and it just shows how innovative um, so many of our campus partners are. So, you know, like many um, offices on campus, you know, budgets are tight, resources are limited. So this office has really created partnerships to try and think about, we can help students with emergency grant aid when we need to, but what are other resources we can turn to before we uh, dip into our emergency grant fund? So at um, that community college, uh, Milwaukee Area Technical College, there is an automotive uh, repair uh, program and shop that needs cars to work on to demonstrate certain skills to help with the training of students there. So at times, if a student, you know, contacts the office and says, you know, I have a problem with my car. I need some help. I don't have another way to get to and from class. They'll go to the, the automotive repair program first and say, hey, here's the situation. Is this something that your students can use as a learning opportunity and can help this other student get their car repaired? So, you know, can we find these win-win um, relationships that help train students and help students in need. And they find that a lot of what they're doing, and this is a faculty-led program, by the way, is um, connecting students to underutilized or unknown resources on campus. Sometimes there's scholarships that a student might not be aware of that they may be eligible for. How can they hook students up with available resources in the community or at the college before even dipping into their uh, emergency grant funds? Well, that's a good transition into the next question about the another common thread throughout the collection is that need to direct students to multiple services and resources. So not just a food, not just a check. Um, but maybe Claire, will you talk a little bit about the other wraparound or one-stop shop approaches in the collection? Sure. So there were three in particular that were highlighted in detail in the, in the book. Um, the three were Single Stop, the Human Services Resource Center at Oregon State University, and the ARC at Amarillo College. And um, I'll give a, a sentence or two on each and then talk a little bit about what kind of makes these programs so incredibly powerful on campuses. So uh, Single Stop is a technology nonprofit focused on anti-poverty work and connecting people to public benefits and partner with community colleges primarily, although some four-year institutions, to bring uh, this program and their, their benefits access and screening software to the campus to help connect students to the social safety net and other resources in their community. Uh, the Human Services Resource Center at Oregon State University is a student-created and student mostly student-run, uh, program focused on helping students experiencing poverty, hunger, homelessness, and food insecurity on Oregon State campus get their needs met so that they can stay in school. And the ARC at Amarillo College is a social services and social work-driven uh, campus office that is focused on making sure that no student has to drop out in order to... Um, cover the costs of life. So that campus on, on Amarillo campus, they believe that there is no excuse for a student not to graduate. And they believe that poverty is actually the number one barrier to student success. And so they have, the ARC is one of many pieces of their work that is focused on making sure students have their needs met. Um, these programs are comprehensive. 
they are multifaceted and they work across multiple time frames. So all of them, uh, well, I can't say every single stop office. So a single stop operates in 10 different states and is um, on 30 different college campuses. So almost all of the single stop sites, the Oregon State University Human Services Resource Center and the ARC at Amarillo Co- uh, College all have campus pantries. So they have immediately the ability to give the students something, even if that something is a box of food. But they recognize, like I said before, that just because a student is hungry today does not mean that giving them food is going to get rid of their issue. They'll probably be hungry tomorrow and the next day. So what these types of programs do is pull together existing resources on the campus, in the community, in the state, and across the country in the form of federal resources to connect students to short and long-term solutions to their issues. So this could look like giving a student a food box, helping them to apply for SNAP benefits, making sure that they're connected to someone who can do their taxes for free and get them education and child tax credits, maybe help them to connect with a local place to do utilities assistance so they can keep the lights and the internet on at their home so they can complete their studies and potentially helping them to get uh, low or no cost childcare. So the idea is that if we take a holistic social work based approach to addressing the student need, looking at the entire student, and we approach it from what they, they say at Oregon State University is an abundance model, recognizing that this isn't a zero sum game. There are a lot of resources in abundance in our community that we can bring to these students that we're able to essentially, as one of the single stop site leads loves to say, wrap around all around that student and embrace them with the things they need to be successful. And so these programs, I I think are one of the best developed versions of addressing food insecurity on campuses because they don't as we argue in the book, shoot for one silver bullet that can fix this. We know that that is not the case. And so that's what Single Stop, the Human Services Resource Center, and Amarillo College's ARC are doing. There are other programs similar in the country. Um, the University of California system have uh, basic needs centers on their campuses that do very similar work. Um, the California State University system is also doing some excellent stuff. There are some colleges in Colorado that have human services offices. So we're seeing this kind of one-stop approach really starting to take off. Yeah. So Katie, tell us a little bit about the student-led interventions. This is a great question because, uh, you know, as Claire has mentioned, students are really the heart of this movement to end food insecurity and basic needs insecurity on our college campuses. So uh, when we think about what are some of the student-led interventions, you know, the answer is basically all of them. If you look at college campuses across the U.S., you found that you find that across across time and space, students have been absolutely instrumental in demanding change on their campus and in demanding that um, their needs need to be met. So, you know, certainly um, at my college campus, students were instrumental in starting our campus food pantry. If you look at um, the chapter in our book about swipe out hunger, um, you'll find that that 
national nonprofit organization um, actually started by students at the University um, of California, uh, Los Angeles, UCLA, where students saw a need on their college campus. And through a lot of uh, work and collaboration with their dining hall and administrators, right, implemented um, a meal sharing program that is now on campuses across the nation. So students have a lot of power um, and students have have really been the leaders in uh, establishing a lot of these food insecurity interventions on college campuses, which is amazing. And I think it's really a call on um, those of us who work in higher education, the, the faculty, staff, and, and our uh, higher ed leaders, the administrators, to meet students at least halfway and think about all the work that they've been putting in and what can institutions do to support these um, interventions. Because as we all know, students come and go on their college campuses. And for this work to really be institutionalized in a way that serves students and meets their needs, we I think we need to have a partnership that harnesses the student energy that has started so many of these interventions and then institutionalizes it on our college campuses or, or in the larger community. Do you have any advice for students who might want to be starting something on their campus? Are there markers of like successful student-led interventions? I mean, I would ask Claire maybe to speak to Oregon State University as um, a, a national model to think about. Yeah. Yeah, um, Claire, please. Yeah, absolutely. So Oregon State University, I, I'm so incredibly proud of the students at OSU. Um the, the ASOSU, which is the student government at Oregon State, recognized in the 1980s that students couldn't afford health insurance. And they decided that if students can't afford it, maybe we'll start selling our own. And they literally started um, a, a way for students to buy into their own health insurance through their student government. And the institution sued the students for competing with the university's health insurance for students and won. And so the students said, well, we're not going to be defeated in this. We're just going to take the money that we set aside for this program and we're going to turn it into other ways to help students uh, to afford the things that they need. And they actually started a soup kitchen, which then transformed into a meal voucher program, which then became a meal voucher program and a subsidy to help students pay for health insurance. And so every time the students found a need that was that required them to address some sort of financial barrier that students were experiencing, what they would do is they would go and talk to the student body and they essentially would, through student fees, levy a small tax for the students to pay for these programs to be, to be there to support their fellow students. When I was at Oregon State, the students paid 700 or 700, oh my goodness, $7.25 per term to keep the office going. And 80% of that went straight back to students in the form of subsidies and services. Um, and then the remainder of that, more than 50% of that went to student salaries who were developing and administering the programs. And the, the amazing thing about it was this was done not just without the help of the administration, but essentially in defiance of the administration who were trying to keep them from helping students afford the things they needed. Um, 
And so I think what made them very successful was, first off, just a strong sense of need uh, to serve everyone in their community. And, you know, I think that historically land grant institutions like Oregon State have deep ties into their community, into things like food and making sure that, um, you know, they were they were founded in a lot of ways to help the children of farmers go to college. And so there's this idea about access and community connection and making sure people have their basic needs met that I think is really engendered in the spirit of a lot of these public land grant institutions. And I think the students at Oregon State really took that and, and ran with it. Um, some other places where I've seen similar stories, right? The, you know, chapter six in our book that, that, Jane, um, that Katie was talking about, the, the Swipe Out Hunger program. These students realized that their meal swipes were, they were losing them at the end of the semester if they didn't use them. So they said, well, hey, let's take these and give it to food to homeless people in our community. And it really caught on. And the administration actually told them, no, you can't give out this food. And they said, no, we're, we're going to do this. We need to come up with a way for us to work together so that this can happen because we don't want these, this food and this money to go to waste when it could be helping other people. Um, and, and then also, I think in chapter five, we have um, Hala for Hunger and the, um, the uh, National Student Coalition Against Hunger and Homelessness. These are two student-led action and activist groups that are really focused on making sure that um, you know, people's needs are being met. And they talk about this long standing history of student activism and student action. Um, and I think that, you know, when it, it's the most encouraging thing to me to recognize that students, they're not willing to take to take no for an answer in these cases, because they are the people that need help. And that's what makes it so incredibly powerful. Yeah, those are really inspiring stories. And I hope that uh, that students who are listening can sort of be inspired by them. Let's talk a little bit about the process of making the collection. So many of the essays describe these partnerships between academic researchers and faculty, administrators, uh, student, affair, student affairs staff, social workers, graduate students, student governments, right? Uh, nonprofits outside of academia. So, so how did you connect with and recruit your contributors, uh, Claire? So, I mean, I'll say I like to joke that we basically just got all our friends together to write a book. Um, <laughs> But the reality is that the community of people, uh, as Katie has said, which is cross-disciplinary and includes, as you mentioned, researchers, faculty, administrators, students, social workers, um, you know, student governments, food banks, local agencies. And I, I mean, I could just continue. I think that the community, because this work is relatively nascent on college campuses, is very close-knit. And so when we sat down to try and figure out what are the best and the brightest in terms of highlighting these interventions, you know, we thought about first off, um, what are people trying to replicate? You know, if everybody, it felt like at the time, at least everybody was trying to start a campus pantry, we should probably do something on that. Um, but then again, you know, there's a lot of research happening. What can we do to talk about the importance of research and data in this process? We recognize that there needs to be policy change and all the interconnected pieces of not just, again, giving a student a food box, but making sure that maybe in five years, 10 years, maybe shorter than that, one could only hope students don't need that food box. 
So when we started looking for contributors, we thought about all these different pieces of what it meant to serve a student in a multifaceted holistic manner and what went into getting there. So that's why we lead with data. And then we talk about shorter term interventions. We then move on from there to look at the role that faculty and students can play. And we start to then move from there to systemic approaches. So that leads us to policy change, right? If we can get to a point where approaches are happening on broader systemic levels, and we can actually see, as as referenced in Chapter 10, culture change on a campus or in a community, then we have the ability to change the policy. So to us, it really uh, was kind of a logical progression of action that leads with knowledge and ends with real change. I'll ask you both maybe about your your must-reads from the collection. Is there a chapter uh, that each of you think is maybe making the most important contributions to the conversation? Uh, Katie, why don't you go first? Of course, this is an incredibly difficult uh, question. <laughs> You're, you know, asking a, you know, to pick your favorite child or something like that. But I think it really depends on what you're looking for. So, you know, we really, when putting this volume together, we really tried to be able to meet people at different parts of their process and their journey, right? So, if you're new to this topic and to this work, I would encourage you to start at the beginning, right? Or if you're looking to implement. To, you know, beef up your campus food pantry or something, certainly check out Claire's chapter on food pantries. For me personally, I think things really get exciting about halfway through, where we move from this focus on discrete programs or interventions to these more multi-pronged and systematic approaches, where we start talking about benefits hubs and transformational change and how to be a leader with a vision. And if you're a faculty or graduate student, how can you think about your research and scholarship as public scholarship and contributing to the greater good? So I think it really depends on who you are and what you're looking for. We start each chapter with a little bit of an introduction from Claire and I that helps to give some context so that the chapters can be used in standalone pieces. Uh, and it could be uh, the book could be read through front to back cover as well. Given where I am and I'm thinking about, you know, we have students listening to this uh, podcast and in my own teaching, I'm really excited to use chapter eight in my teaching, um, thinking about how can we use research as a catalyst for positive systemic change, written um, by doctors McGuire and Crutchfield. Really thinking about how can our research go beyond um, academia and journals? How can we not only engage our students, but um, they engage elected officials and community members and things? And how can we really use the skills, the knowledge, the expertise that we each have? We each have different skills and bring different tools to the table. That's why Claire and I are doing this as a partnership. How can we bring those things to the table and then push forward to make change? Yeah, Claire, what do you think the must read of the collection? Hmm. I mean, I, I would I would echo what Katie said. It really is going to depend um, on who it is I'm talking to. Um, and as a consultant that works with people that are trying to address needs on their campus, I would certainly point people in different directions. Um, but when I think about what makes me feel the proudest um, when I know that it's going to be uh, shared broadly and widely, it's probably chapter 10 
um, the Amarillo College chapter um, by uh, Russell, Larry Hart, Kara Crowley, and Jordan Herrera. Um, the, the program that they put together, um, the ARC that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, is just one piece of a tremendous, powerful 10-year process that they have done, not just to transform an office on their campus, but their entire campus. And the work actually echoes outward into the community. Um, it's the kind of work that I would love to see in every community across the country, where we see the community, and in this case, a community college as a hub for community wellness, for mobility, and for change, and and that is connected in with the K twelve system, has ties with the four year institution up the road, has ties with industry in the community, and you know how they got started on that that whole amazing kind of process was by looking at the, uh, the demographics of the Texas panhandle. And, um, one of the people that I, I did a case study on these folks, um, prior to asking them to write their chapter. And one of the people I met in the community, as I was doing that case study said to me, you know, we looked at the economic viability of our community and we knew if we didn't do something in 10 years, our community would die. And those words, I mean, it, stick with me so, so deeply. And so when I look at that particular chapter and I think about um, where I would like to see this work go, I really do see that as an amazing sort of shining example of what can happen when you really create that multifaceted approach. That chapter was exciting to me too, because that's my, my homeland. I come from the Texas panhandle too. (laughs) Uh, and the Amarillo College radio station was really important to me as a high school student. Oh, wow. Uh, So tell me a little bit about the future of this work. Uh, Katie, what are some areas that you think food scholars should direct their attention? Yeah, I mean, so we started working on this book, I don't know, Claire, three, four years ago um, at, at this point in time. And while, you know, the work I think is more relevant than ever, um, you know, the world has also changed in, in that time. So I think, you know, one thing we definitely need to focus on and to think about um, as we move forward is, um, I think, a more explicit focus on anti-racism and equity. It's there in the book. We talk about, you know, of course, students of all types and backgrounds at all types of college campuses experience food insecurity, but students of color, students from minoritized and marginalized backgrounds backgrounds are at an increased risk just due to the way in which our society is structured. I think this work moving forward needs to have that uh, information be more front and center in the work um, that's being done for sure. And then I, I think there's a number of different you know, topical areas or offshoots um, that I would like to see the future of this work go into. Um, and Claire and I get into that a bit more in the conclusion. But, you know, the as the, you know, um, assistant professor on the project, you know, the research hasn't necessarily kept pace 
with the field in which um, the interventions are being implemented. So we need a lot more information on which interventions are working best for which students under which conditions. Um, I think we need a lot more work thinking about the cost effectiveness of the interventions and programs that we're planning. And um, we also need to think more about um, how different fields can contribute to this work. We're getting there with more inter you know, disciplinary, cross-disciplinary partnerships. But one thing that we touch on briefly in the conclusion is this idea about technology, right? And here we are in the middle of a pandemic and going to school virtually and remotely and things. And, you know, in what ways can we leverage technology to help support our work? And in what ways is technology simply never going to be a substitute for that hands-on, high-touch intervention wraparound work that we know um, some of our students need in order to be successful. So those are a few things that come to mind immediately about um, moving forward with this work. Yeah, Claire, what do you think? Some other next areas we should focus our attention? I mean, I think that one of the big areas that we really do need to look at is, um, you know, we, we're thinking not just about people having these economic strains, but also institutions. And Katie mentioned this earlier, that you know, campus administrators are really juggling an awful lot of things with very little in terms of resources and trying to make decisions, um, you know, to to keep a business afloat, right? Because colleges are businesses, while also trying to achieve the goal and mission of the business, which is to educate students. And so, you know, we need to equip people with information that's going to help them to know what interventions work to what level do they work and and uh, put in their hands the ability to make a strong case for doing this work um, the only way we're going to see basic needs interventions on all college campuses is to make a strong business case for it it's not sexy it kind of makes me feel gross just saying it and at the same time I recognize how critical it is when it comes to decision making um, so for me, I think what's really important is getting right down into that nitty gritty of what works um, and to what level does it work and in what context does it work and how much does it cost to make it work? Because our students need it yesterday and we have to convince people to try and do it today or tomorrow. Well, your book obviously came out before the coronavirus pandemic, but how might those interruptions in course delivery, interruptions in childcare, interruptions in work be affecting students right now? Uh, and how might the restrictions on campus gatherings and, and how campuses have to deal with it be affecting how universities are delivering support? Uh, Katie, where are you seeing right now? Well, I think if you ask almost any sociologist, they're going to tell you that pandemics and other kind of natural disasters and things, these events only exacerbate existing inequalities in our society. They make it more difficult for those who are living on the margins, right? So food insecurity has essentially doubled in our nation. And I'm sure you've seen the news footage of lines stretching around the block of people in need of food and other basic supplies trying to get what they need. College students are part of that community that is in need. So every institution at this time in, in the world, it has to rethink their service delivery and how they are going to um, work with with 
within the new normal that we're experiencing right now. Again, as I've done this work over the past decade, I'm always amazed at the resilience and the creativity and the innovation that so many campuses and have when it comes to meeting a, a demand, a challenge head on. So we've seen many um, campus food pantries go online, online ordering, scheduled pickup times, right? These types of things to cope with the new normal where they're not meeting on campus. Um, I know at some schools have been trying to figure out how to work with their meal share programs, right? Fewer students on campus, fewer uh, being willing to go into dining halls and things. So campus leaders right now today are trying to find ways where maybe they can shift resources from a meal voucher program, for an example, to an emergency aid program or other avenues that are more suited to meet students in need um, virtually or from a distance given the pandemic. Claire, are you noticing anything happening right now? I mean, I think the first thing that was incredibly noticeable was just students can't go to campus and they rely on campus for so many things. So one of the the challenges of putting forward a program that really helps students is if you're closed, you can't do it. Um, and so, you know, trying to understand, you know, initially who's open and who's not. If I'm a student, where do I go if I can't go to my campus pantry and we've got a lot of folks on college campuses and administration who, as much as campuses think that they're effective at communicating to all of their students, they just aren't. And so there were so many students initially as campuses moved online, as campuses closed their residence halls, as they made decisions not to bring students back for sports, um, that these kind of ripple effects were impacting students. Um, and, and a lot of times they don't know who to call or who to turn to. Um, at the Food Bank Alliance, it was incredibly hard just to find out, hey, who's open? Who's not open? Um, it took a really long time to get that kind of information together. We dealt with the same issue at Single Stop. You know, our campuses had to close their doors because so much of basic needs work is social work, right? It's face-to-face. -face. I'm having a conversation with you. So, um, you know, in that case, we actually had to <clears throat> retrain our partners to deliver this type of work virtually. But we had to get a hold of the partners in order to do that. So I think um, the, the communications disruption was incredibly challenging um, when folks were coming up with ideas on how they might address these situations as they came up. Um, I, I also think that it was in, it's been incredibly challenging for people to kind of function in any type of normal capacity when they're worried about their loved ones, when so many of our students are essential workers, when our students' parents are essential workers. So, you know, we have this new scenario where we have some people who are at really high risk and a lot of people who have the luxury of not being, and then this kind of gray middle of people who maybe um, have are, are kind of one foot in the other. And I think a lot of students kind of fall right in that. Um, and as a result, you know, I think a lot of students are actually falling through the cracks. Well, so what can listeners do right now to maybe be a part of a solution? I'm really thinking about myself right now as, as a faculty member uh, and then maybe some of my students who would be listening. You know, we're not ready to propose or run a major program or give wraparound services, but what could we do to be uh, accomplices in the fight? 
Oh, Katie, yeah. please. <laughs> I'll start us off. Um, I think the first thing that everyone can do is raise awareness, spread the knowledge, right, that you've gained through listening to this podcast or reading the book. Too often the the media portrays or maybe we hear friends or family, you know, portraying college students as 18 to 22 year olds with helicopter parents standing nearby. And this simply isn't the reality for most of our students. And it hasn't been for quite a long time now. So as Claire mentioned, you know, over three quarters of our students are considered non-traditional or new traditional. They're going to public colleges, not elite privates that you might see um, in the newspaper article. One in five have children in their own and less than 15% are living in, in a residence hall. They're working, right? So if, if you do the math, food insecurity is not a problem of poor budgeting or kind of mismanagement. It's really a, a systemic failure that we need to address so that we can help students reach their educational goals and, you know, contribute to the well-being of their communities. So if you hear someone, um, you know, talking about college students today, you can speak up and educate them about the realities of what college students are facing. If you're a faculty member or staff and your campus does have resources, your community has resources, you can advertise and share that information with students. We hear from students that a faculty member acknowledging, right, that it can be a struggle to make ends meet and here's our campus pantry and here's our student care and assistance number and you know I recognize this and I see you as a human first can really go um, a long way in helping students feel not only supported but like they belong they're part of this campus community um, and and they have as much value as the students who are not struggling to make ends meet and then the second thing that I would say is that it's 2020 if you're eligible please vote as much as we need people to donate to our food pantries and, you know, help get resources, the no resources to those in need. We also need to elect officials that support um, our values and our goals. So get out and vote, write your elected officials and really let your voice be heard. That's great. Claire, what do you think we could do right now? I think I kind of want to pivot and and talk to the students that are listening yeah. right now. And and so I would first say that if you're a student and you're listening to this and you see yourself or in any of this, if you're experiencing any of these challenges or issues, there is there are ways to to get assistance and often campuses do not do a great job of of um you know putting that information out there and and it is I think a really challenging thing to to walk into a space, to raise your hand, to even send an email or make a phone call and say, I need help. But what I would say is, as a college administrator is it often can feel as though your faculty or your administration don't really care about you. They don't care about anything except for getting your money and making you do work. And, and I can say that, you know, for most people on college campuses, that isn't the case. And so if there is a counseling center, an advisor, a faculty member, or a dean, um, an RA, or uh, somebody who maybe works at a cultural center or a club advisor who you could trust to share that information and disclose that maybe you are struggling and need some help with things like food, housing, transportation, childcare, your car breaking down, whatever that might be, um, you know, 
I, I just want to say we see you and we're, we're working as fast and as hard as we possibly can to make this first off not an issue for any student, um, but certainly to make sure that when this is an issue, there's something that can be done. And there are people on your campus who care about you and love you, even if you don't know it. So, you know, please reach out for those things. We want you to stay in school and we want you to achieve your dreams and your goals and, and leave with that credential, that certificate, that degree, so that you can go and do well for you and your family and your community. Um, and so, you know, I know that probably for you, this isn't happening fast enough. And I want you to know we know that and we are trying as hard as we possibly can. Um, I would say if you are a student and this is not your experience, or maybe this is your friend's experience, or you had no idea that maybe someone in your class could be experiencing food insecurity, this is a great chance for you to find out what's happening. Um, see whether or not your college has completed the real college survey. You can find that information out by going to hopeforcollege.com and looking at the reports to find out whether or not this is a critical issue on your campus. Um, but I can say clearly, even without the data, there are students on your campus, your fellow students that do need these, these services. So the things that you can do, you can become informed, you can volunteer at your campus pantry if you have one, you can vote with your student government to provide dollars to serve students. You can lobby your college vice provost, provost, president, board to address this issue, to take it seriously and recognize how important it is. And you can have empathy for your fellow students in recognizing that it's really hard to study when you're worried about where your child is because you can't afford good childcare or you know, your glasses are broken and you can't replace them. Um, so just, you know, entering every day uh, to class and on your campus with compassion for people that might be different than you can be really powerful as well. That was beautiful, Claire. Thank you so much. So what other projects are you working on next, Katie? How can I follow that? I mean, I don't know if we want to. Uh, that was great, Claire. Thanks so much for that um uh, moving, moving, uh, those moving words. I mean, what I have to say next fails in comparison to that message. Um, but, you know, to respond to your question, what next? I can tell you, Claire and I and so many of our colleagues that are, are have contributed to this book um, are continuing to do the work to try and press forward to ensure that, that students are able to reach their goals. I think one project that I have that's most relevant to this work um, is something we mentioned briefly in the book. Um, I'm studying a meal voucher program uh, with Bunker Hill Community College in Boston. And we that's a program where um, through that college's one-stop office, they help students with meal vouchers so that they were able to eat uh, at the campus dining hall. And we study, we're studying that program um, in a very rigorous causal fashion to find out what is the impact of such a program. We recently released an interim report called Fueling Success that's also available um, on the, the Hope Center's website. And we're finding that offering students those meal vouchers so they can eat in their campus cafeteria, which by the way, not only gets them access to food, but can help their sense of belonging 
belonging, right? And maybe eat with a peer and not have to leave campus during the day. Um, that program appears to have improved students' academic trajectory and well-being. So we're continuing to follow these students and track them, but I think the results look really encouraging, really promising that programs like this meal voucher program, which are not that expensive for the college in terms of direct expenses, we're talking a few hundred dollars per student, can really have measurable impacts on student success. And I think that's exciting. So we're continuing to, to track students and look forward to sharing final results with you soon. Claire, what's next for you? So one of the things that I'm working on right now that I am very excited about um, is through my role as Director of Research and Innovation at Single Stop, um, I have had the privilege of joining forces with a number of other social tech organizations across the United States, including the uh, Aluma, Emrelief, Sevilla, Code for America, Benefits Data Trust, and One Degree. And we have formed what we're calling the Social Tech Collaborative. And, you know, these are all organizations that are nonprofits looking at helping people to connect with public benefits um, and, and additional resources in their communities so that they can serve themselves and support themselves. And while this work isn't limited to college students, um, the, the outcomes so far, I think, have been really positive both on and off college campuses. Uh, when COVID-19 hit, we actually put out um, what we call the COVID-19 response social tech playbook. And it was targeting other organizations, government agencies, colleges, and organizations that serve people who are in need to uh, adjust to the kind of ever-shifting environment that we were experiencing, you know, from March until, you know, probably late July of this year, where people's offices were open, they weren't open, they were essential, they weren't essential, they had tech access, they didn't, their clients had it, their clients didn't. And so, you know, trying to chart a course through that to help them be successful in connecting people to what they need when so many more people were in need. Um, and so now we're moving uh, through that work into kind of tackling some big questions about the role of technology in addressing um, basic needs. And so, you know, what does it mean to create a technology tool, for example, that can help students connect to resources? How do we develop that in a way that doesn't replicate existing structural inequities and uh, structural um, sort of challenges or things that are encoded in American society, um, such as structural racism, like how do we develop technology in a way that doesn't just replicate the systems we have to deliver social services, but actually build and improve upon them. Um, and I mean, it's, it's certainly daunting, and, uh, and a, but also a very powerful conversation that I think is really going to make a huge impact for students and their families and the communities in which those students reside. Well, I just want to thank you both for the amazing work that you're doing. The collection just gave me so much to think about as a faculty member, as a food scholar, uh, about, you know, someone who's in charge of students and student organizations that, you know, I felt at the end that I had uh, 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 an amazing amount of power that was sort of untapped. And uh, I was very inspired. So thank you for the work that you've been doing. Uh, we've been talking today to Catherine M. Broughton and Claire Cady, editors of the new collection, Food Insecurity on Campus, Action and Intervention from Johns Hopkins University. Uh, again, thank you, Katie. Thank you, Claire, for being here today. Thanks so much. Thank you. And thanks for listening.